This morning we are going to focus upon the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves or salvation is of the Lord. There are five men in Scripture with the name Joshua. We can dismiss two of them rather quickly because they're only mentioned in passing. First Samuel chapter 6, when the Ark of the Covenant was returned from the Philistines back to Israel, it was set in a field owned by Joshua of Beth Shemesh. That's all we know about him. And then over in 2 Kings chapter 23, we find that the governor of Jerusalem in the time of King Josiah was Joshua. And that's all we know about him. So we can just take care of those two guys very briefly. But there are two other men in the Old Testament that are more significant. And one of them, of course, is the Joshua, after which the book is named that we're going to read right now, the first six verses of chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So there he is. Take a good look at this man, one of the great uh, characters in the Old Testament. Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant to Moses. He is now the successor to Moses because Moses has passed on to glory. He is now the commander-in-chief of the Israelites. He's been very well prepared. Moses took care of that. He followed Moses' orders to follow the Malachites with an overwhelming victory. He went up with Moses on Mount Sinai for the confirming of the covenant. He attended with Moses in a special time of worship. And, of course, he joined with Caleb in saying, we can go into the land because he, the two men were part of the 12 spies that explored the land. Ten of them came back and said, we can't go there. They're like giants there. We'll never, make any, we'll never get anywhere. Joseph, uh, Joshua, along with Caleb, said, no, we can do it. The Lord has promised to be with us. So this man had a record of faithful service. In this chapter, in this verse as I read for you, we find that he has the privilege of fulfilling God's promise to Abraham many years before this. What had God said to Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to give you and your descendants a special land. It's going to be yours. And now Joshua, standing at the eastern side of the Jordan River, is ready to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Be strong and courageous, because he would be called upon to be the deliverer, the rescuer of of the Israelites as they went into the land to face the Canaanites. And so as we go through Joshua, we find 
that they had victories at Ai and Jericho and Bethel. He went through the center of the land, and then he turned his troops to the south, conquered the Canaanites there, and then he went up to the north, conquered them there, so that the land of Canaan was pretty much under the control of Joshua and the Israelites. And then he divided the land into the 12 tribes of Israel. Joshua, the mighty, heroic, and captain of his people. And as such, he is a wonderful type or picture of the Christ to come, who we know as Jesus, our Lord, our King. And the Shorter Catechism, number 26, says what it means for him to be our King, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Christ executes or carries out the office of king by subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now, years later, we are familiar in the last chapter of Joshua, which we're not going to turn to, I'll just mention it. Joshua made that wonderful statement, choose you this day whom you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Great words. But shortly after that, we read of the death of Joshua, this strong, mighty, military man. Yes, the wages of sin is death. He was a sinner, and he died and was buried. Several hundred years went by, and the promised land indeed was settled, but it became lost. And the people were taken into captivity and bondage by the Babylonians, earlier by the Assyrians. But around 570 B.C., the Babylonians finally captured Judah. Seventy more years passed as the people that were taken to Babylon were in captivity. And then came that great moment when they were able to return to the land, a little remnant of them, around 500 years before Christ more or less. This little faithful remnant of Jews came back to the land. Which takes us to our second major character in the Old Testament, another Joshua. We're not that familiar with him, but let's learn something about him from Zechariah. It's almost at the end of the, New, of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. Let me read for you. Verses 1 through 5 of Zechariah uh, Zechariah 3, our second major character, Joshua, which means the Lord saves. This is a vision that's been revealed to the Zechariah the prophet. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, 
Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So take a look at this Joshua. Quite different than the one we just looked at in the book of Joshua. First of all, he's a high priest standing before the Lord. He's not a leader of an army. Also, he's not in military attire. He's clothed with filthy, rotten garments. And thereby, he represents Israel as a priest, but also Israel as a sinful people. There is our second Joshua in the Old Testament. Now, the scene is largely a legal one, but the fact that Satan is standing his right hand, prosecuting him, invests it with a judicial character. Notice that this Joshua says, doesn't say anything. But the Lord has much to say, as we noticed. Take off the filthy garments. I'm going to clothe him with pure vestments. The Lord speaks and defends him. A wonderful picture is it not what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. What is that? Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all of our sins and cleanses us in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ, imputes us righteousness to us only for the righteousness of Christ that's given to us, credited to us. He removes our filthy garments, as it were, of our sinfulness and clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's accepted, or it becomes real in our life, not because we have to work for it, but by faith we believe that Jesus did that for us. And therefore we can stand righteous before God. Even this morning as we gather here, we're all sinners. We're far from perfect. And yet Christ clothes his people. And so we have access to him. We can pray to him. We can sing to him. We can hear what he has to say to us and believe that the Holy Spirit will apply that to our hearts and to our lives. So with this vision, hope and confidence are given to God's people. But alas, when we come to chapter 4, Zechariah awakens from his vision. It's gone. And eventually, of course, like the Joshua we just looked at a moment ago, he also dies. And he was buried. Again, several hundred years go by, and during that time, the life of the temple worship and the life of the people in Israel became very dark and very corrupt. So as important as these two Joshuas were, and we can learn a lot from them, and I've only just touched the surface, and as important as other deliverers and saviors were, such as the judges like Samson and Gideon and others, there was a need for another Joshua that would far exceed these men in their limited ways. Yet could there ever be a final Joshua to bring salvation, to bring deliverance, to bring completeness to our rescue, the rescue? Yes, there is. There was. We find him referred to in Matthew chapter 1. And let me read for you. Verses 18 through 21. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Joshua, or Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, the name you're to give to this little boy is Joshua. The Hebrews were very impressed with names, not just because they were cute or they were alliterative like John Jacob Jinkerheimer. Nothing like that. They usually were named because it was a family name or there were certain circumstances connected with his birth and they thought they would remember that. It could describe the child's appearance. It could be an expression of future hope for that child or for their family or even for their, their tribe or their whole nation. God had given himself names, right? Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh, to name a few. What were all those names? A description of his character, helping us understand who God is, what he's like. Even we give attention to naming our children for a variety of reasons. Names are not just labeled. We just kind of pick up a name and throw it at the baby and say, this is your name. We do some thinking about it. They represent and identify that person. We hear a name and it brings a particular person to our attention. And for good or bad, we, we think good or bad of the person. The name is mentioned, you say, oh, what a wonderful guy. Or you mention another name and, oh boy, you don't want to have anything to do with her. They tell us something about the person. So it was with a name that God told Joshua to name his baby. In Old Testament times, normally the parents determined that name. But sometimes the Lord stepped in and gave the name, such as right here at the beginning of the New Testament era. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, in the first century, that was a very common name among the Jews, coming in various forms. Let's use an example of modern day. One of the most common names is John. But it's also known in some places as Johannan, Hans, Ivan, Juan, Giovanni. But it's basically the name John. The Hebrews had different names. We say Jesus or Joshua. Hosea was one. Jehoshua, Jeshua, Latin, Jesu, Spanish, Jesus, 
But of course, for our society and our world, we usually think of Jesus, the name Jesus. What's good about that name, back when Joseph lived, was it right away identified him with humanity. Put a name with him. He was approachable. He would be touchable. The name Jesus. And down through the centuries, in its various forms, this name Jesus, or Joshua, testified and expressed the coming Deliverer, the coming Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. And godly people all the way through the Old Testament era, every time they heard that name, Joshua, we remind them, God has made a promise. He's going to send a great Deliverer, a great Savior that we need. Each Joshua was a little hope for the future. What an overwhelming moment for Joseph and soon thereafter for Mary when the Lord told him about this name. Not just back at the end of verse 18 that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Not just that that which is at the end of verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is remarkable enough. And we're not getting into that topic this morning directly. But the fact that Joseph was to name the son Jesus. His most special name. His most personal name. During his public ministry, and I'm sure during this time when he's a little boy and a teenager growing up, people called him Jesus. We would say Jesus or Joshua. Hey, Joshua, come here for a moment. His dad would say, help me with this table I'm building here. That was his personal name. And the church down through the centuries has taken that name into the, some, of, some of the darkest areas of human experience as missionaries have gone forth and missions and churches have been established. Enormous amounts of money have been spent and expended in time and energy to send that name, Jesus, throughout our country and throughout the world. Some of you are familiar with the Gaither song. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all earth proclaim heaven and earth. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. We also need to look at verse 21, his mission. We looked at the name. Now we consider his mission. Because the God who announced to Joseph, name your son Jesus, also preached the sermon based upon that at the end of verse 21. For he will save his people from their sins. That's the reason Joseph 
Joseph, you were to name him Jesus, because that means the Lord saves, and he is going to be the one that is going to save his people from their sins. The mission of Jesus was a rescue mission, a deliverance mission, not primarily to come to bring reformation, to bring education, to be an example of kindness. He will save his people from their sins. Every word there, we need to savor about the Savior. So let's begin with the word he. That's emphasized in the Greek text. He will save. He's going to save. Doesn't mean you can save yourself. The name does not mean that he's just one Savior among many. It doesn't mean that he came to bring improvement to humanity or to enable somebody to find his or her mission in life because his mission was a rescue mission to deliver those that needed to be saved. I grew up in Manhattan Beach, California. Anybody heard of Manhattan Beach, California? Suburb of Los Angeles, about four miles south of the airport. And especially when I was a teenager, my cousin and I were about the same age. We went down rather regularly to the beach. In those days, we rode the waves uh, without surfboards. Surfboards weren't around. See how long ago I lived when I was a teenager. Now they're everywhere. And all the time that we were down at the beach, there were, well, let me back up here. There were times when I would see a, suddenly see a lifeguard come down from his stand, and he had a little a, a yellow deal there. He went charging into the water to rescue somebody. It was always an exciting, interesting thing to watch how he did that. People were floundering. People were about ready to die, and he would go in there and rescue them. They needed to be rescued. But not once. Did I ever see the lifeguard come down off his stand and run over somebody with sunbathing on their towel and start getting the artificial respiration? Why didn't I ever see that? Because they didn't need to be rescued by a lifeguard. The ones that needed to be rescued were the ones floundering, the ones who were being lost to the ocean. Mankind has constantly been looking for saviors of all kinds. Hercules. Paul Bunyan, John Henry, Batman, Superman, the Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Woman, the Terminator, the Exterminator, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel. The list goes on and on and on. But of course, there's nothing real about those individuals. But of course, our ordinary human resources can't do the job either. But what we need it is Christ's glory that He is the Savior. He is that or He is nothing. W.A. Criswell writes, An Alexander may build an empire. A Napoleon may change the nations. A Newton bring about an intellectual revival, a revolution. An Edison create a new world of science. But the only one who can touch and transform the human heart is Jesus, Joshua. 
Now, there's one word here that we must not overlook. It's the word in our translation, the ESV, will. He will save. It's assured. Now, the word will is actually not a separate Greek word. It's part of the verb, so say, save. But it's future tense, indicating this is going to happen out there in the future. Jesus, he will save. He's not going to fail. He will do it. Not he might save. Not he'll try to save. But of course, only if you let him. It's not a take or leave at salvation where Jesus waits to see if the sinner will make the right choice by his free will. Because the sinner will never do that because he can never do that. He's dead into sin. Rather, Jesus determines to save. Well, okay. We know not everyone's going to be saved. Not everyone's going to heaven. So who is it that is going to save? Well, remember I said it has to be people that need it. And who are they designated here in our text? He will save his people. The Bible speaks of Christ's sheep. As we learned in Sunday school this morning in the adult class, his elect, his church, his saints. Jesus, in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, prayed. He said, I'm not praying to the Father. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. But isn't that a rather... Narrow and tolerant view, especially at Christmas time. Isn't Christmas a sort of a democratic thing? Everybody can enjoy Christmas. You say, Merry Christmas to everybody and all through the world, even in Japan, where what? There's less than 1% that are professing Christians. They love Christmas. The lights and the songs and so on. It's a great democratic thing. Goodwill to all men. Doesn't this Joshua belong to everyone? Well, in a sense, yes, if we mean to Jews, to Gentiles, to the rich, to the poor, to the educated, to the non-educated, to men and women and boys and girls. Yes, in that sense, he belongs to everyone. But Christ was not born with an obligation to save anybody. Why should he save those who stubbornly remain in their rebellion and their unbelief? Maybe there's some of you here this morning who are that way. You've heard about Jesus before. You know what Christmas is kind of all about. You've heard something of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners and all who put their trust in him will be delivered from their sins and have eternal life. And Jesus rose again that we might be justified in the sight of God. But you never really put your trust in Jesus. Most of you, I think, know by now that the King James Version, Luke 2.13, is not peace on earth. Well, it is that translation. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the Greek text is on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Very narrow. He came to save and rescue and deliver his people. But from what? What's the condition of these people? 
For he will save his people from their sins. Ah, back to that again, huh? This is Christmas time. Shouldn't we have more positive feelings? Why bring sin up? Well, of course, unless you face up to your sin, you cannot appreciate what Jesus did and who Jesus is. You'll have no interest in trusting in him because you're not dealing with your sins. For centuries, as I mentioned earlier, our world has looked for saviors of all kind to defeat uh, enemies, remove poverty, bring peace among the nations, eradicate illiteracy, alleviate suffering, soothe troubles. But these problems are only symptoms of the main problem that man is born with a heart that's a rebellion against God, a holy God. We are reminded in this text, as were Matthew's first readers, not to expect this Joshua to be some kind of a political freedom fighter, although I think they always kept doing that. Also, right at the beginning of this book, Matthew wants to orient his readers to the fundamental mission of this Joshua, which is what? To save them from the penalty of their sins, their past, to save them from their present, the present power of sin in their lives, and from any future presence of sin that would come, and we know it's going to come because we're not perfect in this life. A big task. But Christ came into our world to deliver us from that predicament. Jesus was born that he might save. Jesus lived a perfect life that he might save. Jesus went to the horrendous death of the cross that he might save. Jesus was raised again from the dead that he might save. Jesus ascended into heaven that he might save. And Jesus is coming again that he might save. Indeed, that will be the full accomplishment of our salvation. So I ask you here this morning, how do you relate to all this? Just so many words, something you've heard before, but it's not that relevant to your life. You've got your things to do, your work, your, your family, whatever it is. You don't have that much. You don't mind coming to church like this for a little bit, but then you've got your own life to live. I close with this quotation from William Henriksen, a wonderful Bible scholar, commenting on this text, on this page, uh, Matthew one twenty one. It is ever God, God alone, who in and through His Son saves His people. While some trust in chariots and some in horses, in physical strength, knowledge, reputation, prestige, position, magnificent and impressive machinery, influential friends and intrepid generals, none of these whether operating singly or in conjunction with all the others, is able to deliver man from his chief enemy, the foe that is little by little destroying his very heart, namely his sin. Or here, sins. Those of thought, word, and deed, of omission, commission, inner disposition, all those various means in which man misses the mark, God's glory. It takes not less than the atoning death of Jesus and the sanctifying power of His Spirit to cleanse hearts and lives. Joseph, this new baby 
this little son. You will call his name Joshua. Because he is the final Joshua. The one who will save his people from their sins. Join me in prayer. Father, once again, we have focused upon the birth of Jesus, especially the significance of that birth and his work as our Savior. May each one of us be honest as we look in our own hearts to realize we are sinners, we need a Savior, and by faith may we reach out to Jesus, not only as Savior, but as the Lord, the King, the Master of our lives, In his name we pray. Amen.